Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and I'm joined again by Ben Simon for our July Simulcast Journal Club. How are you, Ben? I'm good, my friend. That month went very quick, so uh, looking forward to digging into some new papers. Mm, absolutely. Uh, it was a month full of simulation goodness. We watched from afar as the CSAM crew had a fabulous time in Lisbon, saw some uh, good keynote talks via Twitter and lots of other research work going on. And I was also lucky enough to go to the Sun Conference at the Gold Coast. That's the LADL Simulation User Network meeting. And that was also a really nice chance to connect with some of our local friends uh, in the simulation community. And again, lots of good workshops and things. So uh, it seems the simulation community around the world is thriving. Yeah, 100%. All right. Well, we're going to dig into four articles and I'm going to kick us off uh, by one that comes again from some local friends. Uh, so this is a paper titled Understanding Observed Receiver Strategies in the Healthcare Speaking Up Context. And this is from Mel Barlow, who's now at ACU, previously at uh, Marta uh, in Brisbane, uh, Bernadette Watson and Elizabeth Jones, and it's in IJOS, the International Journal of Healthcare Simulation, so free and open access. Uh, and just to sort of think about how does simulation fit into this paper, this is a study that uses simulation as a test bed for exploring social and interpersonal behavior. So similar to some of the things that we've seen about speaking up and maybe I'm not that approachable that we did about the end of last year. So the background to this uh, focuses on this notion of speaking up, which, Ben, we have spoken about uh, before. And we know this is a good thing for patient safety if people who are potentially more junior in a hierarchy, point out if errors are going to be made or if they have concerns. Uh, but it's not as simple as just saying, hey, speak up. Turns out there's lots of barriers to speaking up, um, including anticipation of how that message will be received. So one of the great things about this paper is that it shifts the focus of the research away from the people doing the speaking up to the people listening. And I think this is well overdue, and Mel obviously has made this a part of her PhD work and um, fabulous work it is. Now, uh, before they get into the paper, there is quite a discussion of the theoretical framework that uh, Mel and her colleagues take into this called communication accommodation theory. And look, to be honest, it's worth reading the paper just for this because it's very interesting. And this is an intergroup theory of communication. And I'm going to quote here. It provides a framework to predict and understand intergroup interactions and their associated power differentials. Uh, and goes on to describe that an individual's communication goals, motivations and drivers of their communication behaviours are influenced by their salient group identity. And I think we kind of know that, but I think it means that if you are one of these people speaking up or listening down, uh, you're, t you're making an assessment about the risks to and what the threats are to that um, identity. And goes on to say, well, there's sort of broadly two types of behaviors that people listening can take. One is the accommodative way, which is you're trying to build empathy and trust and minimize power differentials. 
or you can take the non-accommodative way, which seeks to make more distinctions between you and the person who's talking to you. So this is very useful because this is the lens through which they examined the behaviors that they saw in these things. So their study was what communication accommodation strategies do receivers use to assist their understanding of speaking up? So how did they do this? They had 130 participants in a series of simulations. Uh, so they were actually attending sims that were part of a speaking up training program. Uh, it was interprofessional, but the biggest groups were nurses and midwives. There were 96 of them, 20 doctors, and about 22 of various allied health specialties. Uh, and the simulation was pretty short and simple. There was a patient who was planned to be discharged, and there was a nurse who was looking after that patient. Uh, who was sort of in a roundabout way trying to tell this interprofessional group who walked into the simulation that the patient wasn't ready to go home yet. They were at too high risk of falls. But they were deliberately using a kind of so-called hint and hope strategy. They didn't come out and say it. Uh, so they debriefed the sims. They then analyzed the videos to look at what kind of things got said by the people who were receiving this hint and hope message. Um, and as I said, they're pretty short sims. They're only four to five minutes long. Um, I don't know quite why they used a mannequin for the patient who was going to be discharged, but anyway, that was all not important to the point. The interaction was between the bedside nurse and the people who arrived. So the results were pretty interesting perhaps partly because people were in a speaking up program. Um, people were largely using accommodative type strategies. Um, but uh, there were some differences between, well, in some cases between professions, but just in terms of what people did. Uh, seeking further information was the commonest behavior. People were trying to understand uh, what is it that uh, is the problem here. But interestingly, and they made more of this than I would have, but they said the nurses and midwives tended to find out, oh, what do we need to do so that we can get this woman out the door? Whereas interestingly, the medical officers tended to stay back a little bit. And then when they did engage in the conversation, they actually, as they describe here, sought deeper clarification, which often led to them going, aha, she's really not ready to go home, is she? And having that kind of a resolution to the simulation. And these were often shorter simulations than the ones where it was, oh, do we need to write her paperwork? Do we need to get her medications? Do we need to do these other things, the more task-focused work? So there was more subtlety to the analysis, but I think for my money, this was the key things. And I think uh, the messages here for me are, look, training for receivers is really important. And I think even just reading this article, I am much more thoughtful now thinking, hmm, if someone was asking me these things, I'd actually be thinking what kind of strategies and what kind of messages would I be using. And so I think research into understanding the barriers to the effective receiver behaviors um, should inform what kind of training we do for receivers. Uh, knowledge and skills will be a part, but there's obviously some other barriers as well. So I thought this was just a beautiful illustration of how to use a theoretical framework really effectively and uh, but I think it still illustrated this challenge of trying to set up some sociological fidelity because there's no doubt these people were probably behaving a bit differently because of being in a sim and in a program uh, such as this um, it was pretty obvious that doesn't invalidate the results but obviously it's one thing that we would use to interpret their significance and generalizability so fabulous work thank you Mel what did you think Ben? 
Uh, well, I feel like you stole most of my notes already. So, oh, really? <laughs> so we're on the same page, mate. Uh, I did also enjoy the breakdown of the receiver parameters and the exploration of what that looks like. Uh, and I did find the professional differences quite interesting. Um, I have to confess, I agree. One weakness I saw with the study was that this was run during a speaking up workshop. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that the doctors picked up the game and were using open questions. And I guess to me, in terms of an article, I love it. In terms of uh, my reflections on it, uh, there is a persistent asynchrony between some of the po- problematic behavior I see at receiving messages in my real clinical life, uh, which is in contradiction to the findings of this article. Now, maybe that just means there's better speaking up training there, but um, I I think that there is a sociological fidelity uh, problem if we draw too many conclusions from this, but I think there are still heaps of really useful information in there about what is a meaningful, effective listening pattern and the different ways that we are socialized to approach a problem in different streams of healthcare as well. Uh, so I think this paper absolutely adds to our understanding of the receiver's contribution to the speaking up dynamic. And I'm really delighted to see somebody focusing on that incredibly integral part of that problem. Mm, absolutely. Mm. I might have missed it. I didn't see what level of training the doctors were, but I actually suspect junior doctors are quite good at this. Uh, and if they had a preponderance of residents and registrars, I, I wonder that that wouldn't have actually been a bit more widespread because I think they are used to, particularly in this sort of context, someone saying, eh, I don't think this is quite right, and then realising it's a survival skill to try and work out exactly what uh, the nurse is concerned about. So, yeah, no, mm, absolutely. Interesting. Mm. All right, well, we'll look forward to more from Mel. She, we've already had lots from her on this topic, mm-hmm. but um, I'm sure there's more to come. Fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, meanwhile in Adventures in Academic Nihilism, Vic, uh, a paper, <laughs> a paper from one, one of my big man crushes, Andrew Petrosoniak et al., on whether mastery learning is all that it's cracked up to be. So the paper's entitled, Are We Talking About Practice? A Randomized Study Comparing Simulation-Based Deliberate Practice and Mastery Learning to Self-Guided Practice. Uh, and this was published in May 2023 in the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine. And how would I summarize this? Hmm. Well, their goal was to compare mastery learning and deliberate practice to self-guided practice with mentoring uh, and looking at how that impacts learning a new uh what we call psychomotor or or, uh, a new procedural skill in the short and long term. So about six to 12 months after the teaching. And the reason for this makes total sense that there are a lot of resources that are required for mastery learning techniques. You need sufficient coaches and time to provide that intensive level of training. So it's a pretty expensive technique. And if it works better, that's great. But appropriately, this team, we're asking whether that's actually the case. So they ran a pretty big randomized controlled uh, study at five emergency medicine residency training programs in North America involving 176 residents. And the procedural skill that they chose was bougie-assisted cricothyroidotomy, which is a surgical airway technique that the team identified as one that's pretty unlikely that their residents had established proficiency going into the training. And they randomized 176 emergency medicine residents into the mastery learning deliberate practice group or the self-guided practice group. And you could still get some coaching if you requested it in the self-guided group, but it was very much more self-directed. 
So both groups saw a training video prior to the intervention and they watched an expert perform the task. But then one group performed each step of the procedure with direct observation of an instructor with timing and really close coaching and feedback from the experts in the room. While the self-guided group, they, you know, they had an expert, but they only got the coaching, coaching if they asked for it. And they kept going with their rehearsal till they just felt comfortable and then got to leave at their discretion. So all the residents then performed the skill on video at the time of the study, and three blinded experts rated their performance, including an objective measure of their timing. Now, this is a group of emergency residents, so there was a decent amount of loss to follow up, uh, which is pretty understandable when you think of all their rotations and where they would move on. Uh, but they did grab as many as they could from six to 12 months later for a repeat performance test on video. And long story short, Vic, what did they find? Well, really no difference at all beyond the fact that the mastery learning group were a little bit faster, but not in a clinically significant way. So this is a nice thing to reflect upon when we're trying to work out what the right teaching method is for the thing that we're trying to teach. And there's some great discussion in the article highlighting current deficits in our research on mastery learning and examples of other studies that have kind of scarily also found minimal impacts. I love that this article doesn't overreach and there's some cautious and considered reflection on the value of mastery learning and deliberate practice in the conclusions and discussions. They highlight that maybe like a relatively quick procedure like this doesn't actually benefit from the theoretical uh, benefits of mastery learning and deliberate practice anyway. You know, you're not having to break heaps of subtasks down and rehearse each component to be able to build it back up into a more complex skill. And they also identify it was only a single training session. There was, you know, there were different experts providing this training at the different centers. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think it's pretty clinically realistic as well. That's actually the situation we're wanting to test because uh, those are more realistic representations of what emergency training is. We probably aren't going to devote multiple sessions to that skill in our emergency registrar curriculum. You know, there's other things we've got to cover. So they conclude that, you know, uh, deliberate practice and mastery learning or self-guided practice are suitable for teaching that skill. They do note that there was a clear return to baseline performance around six to 12 months later, reinforcing that idea that spaced repetition is very important for continual learning and that they don't want to close the door on deliberate practice and mastery learning, but maybe they wouldn't open it for discrete psychomotor tasks like this either. Any thoughts, Vic? Oh, so many thoughts, mm. but uh, starting with admiration and uh, the quality in the author team, I think, gives us a little bit of an idea that this was always going to be great work, mm. so interesting. And I think just to sort of situate this again, thinking about how does SIM fit into the research here, SIM in this case is both a method of the training and it's also the modality of the assessment. So, and I think both are perfectly appropriate, but I think it's just always useful to think is SIM what we're researching or is SIM the way, is SIM the place where we're doing the researching? Uh, and the th a couple of things struck me was this sentence in the uh, introduction about recognizing that a longitudinal coaching program purposely built for mastery learning is not feasible. I totally agree, but it actually seems quite the admission when it's phrased that way. It's kind of like, oh, we can't actually train people properly. Uh, or, you know, if you accept, in fact, that deliberate practice is maybe a superior way of doing it, which this does call into question. Uh, I agree. I think it was a good procedure to choose because People don't have baseline skill from practice at work. This is truly very uh, low occurrence in the halo. 
Um, but I guess when you get a result like this, you always think, is there actually a difference and our methods and measures are bad or is there no difference? Uh, I suspect in this case it probably is the latter, but in my mind there's a few reasons for that. One is that the, um, I think the self-directed group were probably pretty good learners and they had a pretty good session as well. They know it's important. They're worried about having to do it. They've seen a video that shows it. They do have access to instructors. And again, looking at knowing the institutions where this was done, they've probably had heaps of good procedural skill training, which means they're pretty advanced learners. And I think it would be easy to underestimate how good the training was for the group that didn't do deliberate practice. So I think that's one uh, factor in here. And then the reality is, even though it's high stakes and might be high stress, it's actually a pretty simple procedure. So it might be hard to tease out a difference, whereas I suspect if you're talking about a laparoscopic salpingectomy or a sort of more complex surgical task where you have to make a lot of decisions as well as then do a number of different procedural steps, I think it might start to tease out that difference. Um, Andrew Petrosoniak was kind enough to answer a couple of questions that I had sent to him as well uh, offline, and uh, he one of the things I was interested in was there a difference between institutions, for instance, if the instructors were different, but they didn't find any of that difference either. So um, I, I think it's very interesting. I don't think that means we shouldn't think hard about having clear endpoints for our training goals, um, but I agree we should think really carefully about what's the return on investment for doing that for every skill, and it probably isn't there. Um, but probably if we do it for some, it's likely to rub off on the others, but that is completely anecdotally opinion-based, nothing to do with this beautiful work where it's rigorously tested. Absolutely. Uh, and I'm just excited that Andrew Petroniak has an email in my inbox, so that's the highlight of my week, so we're all good. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it first here, Simulcast listeners. Another one of Ben's simulation crushes. <laughs> All right, well, moving on from something highly practical and quantitative, we're now moving to something a little bit more opinion-based, but uh, two opinions that I think we should listen to. So this next paper is from the journal Medical Education, and it's in the State of the Science section, which is a sort of commentary section. Uh, and the title is Demonstrating Causality, Bestowing Honours, and Contributing to the Arms Race. Threats to the Sustainable of Health Professions Education Research. And this comes from Lara Varpio and John Sherboneau from the US and Canada, respectively. Um, loud and clever voices in health professions education. Uh, and as I said, I think this overview of this is sometimes pendulum swing, I think, in fields of study. And I think this paper represents a pushback against the pendulum that has swung towards two things. One is the idea of targeting our uh, educational research, including simulation towards patient outcomes, and the second idea of having academic productivity. And so this is a paper that is a pushback against each of those. Now, if you don't know Lara Varpio and John Sherboneau, uh, they used to do the Key Lime podcast. I think they've renamed them Papers Podcast now, uh, but they also all have, both have written excellent things in the health professions education literature. So I'm going to quote from them, uh, from the paper here. The paper reflects on two terms that have taken hold as powerful idols in health professions education research that stand above questioning and apart from critique, 
patient outcomes and productivity. And that quote, I think, illustrates uh, not just the stance that they're taking, but also the fact that's typical of how well written the whole thing is. So that's worth reading just for that. And look, they start by really sort of admitting that there's perils in predicting the future and having an opinion. And so they readily admit that. Um, but then they move on to discussing the significance of language. And we've talked about that, Ben, with some of the terminology uh, papers that have appeared in the literature and whether we should be calling people confederates and using simulated patients as opposed to working with. So, you know, language does matter. But in this case, uh, they do a bit of a deep dive. Uh, and if people are interested, they've, there's a few names in there, um, Kenneth Burke, Laura Lingard, and Foucault himself, uh, as ways of thinking about the significance of language that both, and I quote, enables and constrains. And in particular, they talk about this idea of God terms, key terms that are fundamental grounds for human action, uh, and which it, they get to the end of a conversation and conflict and someone throws down the trump card and says, it's all about the patient outcomes. Bang, the card goes on the table and no further correspondence can be entered into. And I think that's the bit that they're pushing back against. So to take each in turn, um, look, the idea of measuring our educational efforts against some patient outcomes sort of seems quite nice. We would like to think that what we do as educators contributes to good patient outcomes, but obviously it's not so simple. Uh, and they point out that particularly those of us who grew up in the physical sciences of you know, chemistry, biology, and then microbiology and all those things we do in medicine, um, we end up with a bit of a mindset that leads our educational research to search for evidence of efficacy. And so we start to look at some of these paradigms that don't necessarily fit as well with a social science like education. Uh, and in fact, they say we've done pretty well to avoid this completely. Um, and we don't just test one thing against another, although there's still plenty of those articles around, I would say. And they're saying most health professions educational research is not proof of, and I quote, simple and generalizable truths. Uh, but there's a fair few people who have said patient outcomes is the goal. And I have to admit, um, you know, I've sort of found myself in this camp. I would say, oh, this is really hard, but we should be trying to do it. But they push back again and say, look, uh, let's just let's make a distinction here between contribution, good idea, and then trying to establish causal link, which might lead to some other problematic ideas. And in particular, the idea that, you know, if we train doctors, shall we say, that patient outcomes will be dependent on those doctors' skills sort of neglects an entire range of literature that would suggest that there's a collective competence in most of what we do, and not just collective in terms of teams, but collective in terms of systems as well. Um, I was uh, impressed, uh, but also amused. There's a couple of little first-person testimonials in here, and Jonathan Sherbino's reads like a real mea culpa, like he's been changed. It's almost evangelical. I, I was I was saved from my <laughs> post-positivist thinking, and now I've got a better way of thinking about it. But I, I take his point. It's actually really nicely written, and I can identify with a lot of what he writes in there. So they sort of say, look, there's many kinds of outcomes that are important and influential, and uh, think how does education contribute to those as opposed to just trying to find this causal link. So I thought this was fair, but I think we should be careful because I do spend a lot of time with people going, oh, this educational research is rubbish, I can't see a p-value, and I worry that this will just push us further away if we say patient outcomes don't matter. I don't think that's what Lara Varpio and John Sherbino are saying, but I can see how when the pendulum gets pushed back a little bit, we might lose some of our um, allies along the way.
So I'm just going to pause there. What did you think about the patient outcomes things, Ben? Uh, well, I, I would say I just think it's always good when the pendulum starts swinging the other way in such an entertaining way. This is just <laughs> yes. such a gloriously fun, spicy read. Um, I agree with you. I feel some tension here in that I think that the points about some of the impossibilities of us actually being able to prove causality are really important. And even just reading this once gave me some good language to sometimes push back on unfair expectations on educators who are delivering great education at delivering accountabilities that actually probably aren't fair. And uh, simultaneously, though, I kind of felt this tension because I agree it's all well and good to rebel against the current system and some of the dogma, and I think that's really insightful and smart. Uh, but then how then do we hold ourselves accountable as academics in the future without descending into research that doesn't really help or change anything? So I think there is still that who watches the watchman type conundrum with this at a certain level, and there's going to be hopefully some kind of sweet spot that will continually either move towards or move continuously across. Yeah, mm. hopefully John Sherman still goes back and does a few systematic reviews. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, well, then the uh, second part of the second God term that they get into is productivity. And look, I have to admit um, to a bit more nihilism about this one because this is one I totally agree with. Uh, they, In this case, they say that the term productivity and its associated activities endangers the individuals who work within health professions education. So they're really underlining the idea uh, in this second part of the article about the metrics, the publish or perish, uh, and the fact that the way people's work is counted uh, has led to, and they isolate a few, but ethically problematic behaviours, and in particular they go deep on authorship decisions um, and the fact that people are doing some things, some of which are outright bad and some of which are just arguable about including people on authorship groups and then I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch mine So because people are desperate to get publications and uh, maybe they don't actually meet the criteria. Uh, and then associated with this, the idea of a publications arm race uh, where there's uh, obviously increasing requirements for people to produce research, to get jobs, etc., which may or may not make them very good at those jobs, but they because we've decided that that's one of the things we're going to count, it becomes problematic. And in particular, it says that the risk is that health professions education could become an echo chamber where privileged scholars are read and cited, so then it becomes a higher barrier to entry for people who might be doing some good work, but because they're new and they haven't got this track record, uh, they may not be noticed, their work may not be important. And now we get Lara's mea culpa, where she actually describes, you know, an awkward experience early in her career where some of this dynamic played out. And I thought that was very interesting uh, and helpful for, for to see that example, because you can just see how easily it could happen. Uh, so again, I found this super easy to agree with, perhaps even more so than the first topic. But I feel much more nihilistic about being able to do anything about it because this is not restricted to health professions education. This is academia everywhere. Uh, and I feel like once we start counting things, it's a very good warning that there's unintended consequences of trying to reward effort and 
all those other things and that the uh, the arms race is a very real thing. So I'm not sure what to do about it except go, yes, agree. Now, until we get that, I mean, I assume the solution is that we talk about that paper on this podcast and then the legions of listeners immediately change their mind and there's enormous practice impact. But I suppose your scenario could play out as well. <laughs> no, now that you bring that to my attention, I realize the impact we might have. Lara and Jonathan will just be so grateful. Yeah, you can thank us later, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's tricky. Yeah. yeah. I didn't really, um, I guess not being heavily immersed in that level of academic world, it, I didn't have as much of a, a personal, uh, perspective on that second part. But again, mm. just really enjoyed the pushback against, uh, some, uh, current dogma. And I thought that was very well, uh, described and argued against. I do think it's probably worth from the edu, like from the educational impact thing. I still do think, there are things we can measure, particularly in translational sim as opposed to education, and that, that could easily also be swept up in the pendulum swing as uh, the same thing when actually I think it's very, very different. Agreed. And mm. I think it comes back to what you're trying to do. I think there's a place for mm. measurement of some of these outcomes and then there's a place for other things. Yeah. Um, I think it's worth just your comment about how you don't feel that second part as much and i think we're very lucky here in australia mm. and in the way our health and education systems are set up well there's downsides to our setup as well but the, one of the upsides is you and i have never had to have that publish or perish for our jobs um yes of course various forms of achievement are uh, welcomed in our perf um, performance assessments but there's nothing like what i see with my north american colleagues yeah, must be a very different world. Yes. Hmm. All right. Well, now, Ben, All right. deep dive into deep briefing. Uh, prepare for my uh, – this was a, ch a challenge, dear listener, so uh, tune in. <laughs> so, look, uh, the paper I'm looking at next is called Transforming Professional Identity in Simulation Debriefing, a Systematic Meta-Ethnographic Synthesis of the Simulation Literature. And it's by Ranjev Kainth and Gabe Reedy and published in Simulation in Healthcare. And I don't know about you, Vic, but I really love reviewing articles of people that I know and admire who are also editors-in-chief of prominent simulation journals and then talking my about my opinions on it on social media. So thank you for putting this one in our <laughs> No box. pressure. Yeah. And this yeah, article, about a method that we know nothing about. Absolutely. So this should go yeah, really yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So prepare to bathe no, with the every man consumer. <laughs> with the every man consumer, that's what we're channeling here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. like my brand. Um, so, <laughs> so uh, this article. Look, I'd have to say this is a hefty beast. It is a big read with some very dense concepts, uh, which can make it quite a challenging article from an accessibility point of view to work through and also to summarize. Uh, but at the same time, I just really felt when I was reading this that it is a very seminal piece of work that will be quoted a lot in the future, uh, particularly within the heavily academic spectrum of, of uh, simulation research. I think it is a very sophisticated interrogation of our understanding of learning in debriefing, how that happens and what that looks like. And I think it really value adds to our understanding, or at least our synthesis of our understanding of what is happening 
within a debrief because I think this article highlights that that is actually really complex. Uh, and on a side note, I feel like I want to do a podcast with Michaela Kolb and my friend Yanni, the psychiatrist, one day about parallels and differences between group therapy and debriefing because I think there's something there. Anyway, uh, so how to even summarize this paper? Well, at the core of the article is kind of this acknowledgement that debriefing remains almost universal in use in some ways, yet it's relatively under-researched and we don't have a lot of detailed understanding of how debriefing works and how it enables learning. So this article attempts to synthesize and interpret existing debriefing literature through a pretty meticulous and intensive process called meta-ethnographic synthesis. Uh, so you may be asking yourself, well, what is meta-ethnographic? <laughs> Meta, I was going so well. Meta ethnographic synthesis. Um, and the article actually is a great breakdown of that. So it, it, it describes the seven steps in that process very explicitly. Uh, but I asked GP chat to explain it to a 15 year old, which was the perfect pitch for me. Uh, and it said a systematic meta ethnographic synthesis is a way of combining and analyzing information from different studies to understand or inform people's beliefs and values of different cultures, which I think was a pretty good summary. And so in this work, the primary author aimed to synthesize and interpret the conclusions that authors had made from pre-existing literature and debriefing. And the article does a nice job of explaining that process, but the very quick and inadequate oversimplification that I'm going to give you is that they found 17 papers through a PICOS-based literature search, read the papers, grouped them together by theme, and then reflected on how they were related, looked at those groupings, and then made further interpretations based on the perceived relationships between them, and then through that generated new concepts and synthesized those findings into a final line of argument. And look, I feel like the depth of this article really defies pithy summarization. Uh, but I think this, their conclusions and summary at the end are actually pretty good. So it says at the heart of the framework that they come up with is this concept of reflective work where participants and faculty recontextualize the simulation experience bidirectionally with clinical reality. It is a process that facilitates sense making. And this occurs in a learning milieu where activities such as storytelling, performance evaluation, perspective sharing, agenda setting, and video use are undertaken. And the outcome is conceptualization of new feature roles, future roles, sorry, clinical competence, and professional language development, a process of transforming professional identity. And that to me, I think, is a very elegant comprehensive but digestible synthesis of everything I've seen go on in a debrief. And I love the emphasis on the formation of new professional identity formation over learning, because I think that's probably true. This would be my gut feel. Um, figure three in the article, I think, is a really lovely breakdown of like 31 different principles that are related to different debrief phases. And it's such a rich description of what actually goes on. They use examples like uh, they take psychological safety and actually break that into seven core components, including things that are often less discussed. So the use of humor to build relationships is one. Uh, generating safety and learning through familiarity and relationship building. They also describe an element of conceptualizing future practice, being about contextualizing the sim, but then moving towards concrete commitments to practice change and specifying future learning needs. 
There's a couple of really lovely visual representations of their models, um, which actually use nice color just from a design point of view compared to a lot of uh, articles, which makes it a bit easier to digest. And there's one that synthesizes their perspective on how learning works in debriefing into three core steps, reconstructed simulation experience, reflective work, and transforming identity. There is also another one that's pretty complex that sort of looks like those uh, diagrams of the whole metabolic chemical reaction pathways in the in the human body it's a yeah, bit overwhelming myself yes krebs cycle yeah. plus more <laughs> yeah on steroids uh but i really admire their diligence at trying to synthesize and bring all of those uh, complex and interrelated concepts together so look big picture vic i think this is a really marvelous challenging but seminal work of reflection around learning and debriefing i think it's very academic it might not be the right read for you know the average bedside clinician who's just looking to pick up some teaching skills but i think this will be a, a really useful and frequently quoted paper moving forward and i thank the primary author for their very diligent very hard sounding work oh yes this must have mm. taken quite a lot of doing and it, it's very faithfully documented what that work was in their description of their meta ethnography uh which is useful i guess if people are thinking about trying to reconceptualize another process in a similar way. And like you, I'm in no position to be judging the quality of that kind of method. Uh, but as someone who's done quite a lot of debriefing, looking at the diagrams, which I also loved, uh, yes, I can. it makes sense to me. And uh, this idea about the reflective work, but it's through reliving and reconstructing experience. And at first, it struck me, why this emphasis on the professional identity? Like, that just seems like that's overemphasized. But then when I read through it, I thought, hmm, actually, that probably is more of what's happening uh, than learning. And of course, you know, we have the, not issue, but the joy of having different uh, disciplines have different language sometimes and I guess educational fields and other psychology fields and I know that that's probably more the, sp the spin on it here. Uh, we'll sometimes call things different names but I think sometimes it's a not too dissimilar phenomenon that's being described and I think when you do work like this you have to make some choices about uh, which paradigms you're going to enter into it from but I think it is very useful. The other thing I liked about it was this were these were it included studies of actual debriefing. It wasn't just people writing about this is how I think you should do a debrief. And those articles are very useful, especially when they come from experts with lots of experience and who are good at describing that for people who might be trying to get better at it. But I think this says no 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 this is actually analyzing debriefings and looking at what goes on uh and so that I think provides a pretty faithful representation of, of what we have observed and known about this. So, yes, thank you to the author team. All right, well, a very tidy July Simulcast Journal Club. Uh, only a bit of news, just to remind us, Simulation Reconnect. We'll keep on giving little gentle plugs here. I know it's still November away, um, but I've been talking to some of the speakers who are going to be there, like Matt Alsava, Ian Summers, uh, as well as Deborah Nestel is going to oh, come back. Definitely. And, of course, Vicky LeBlanc, um, Ellie Davies, lots of great people coming. So I've been staying excited about it. So Simulation Reconnect, if you Google that uh, at Bond University or go onto the Simulcast website, we've got a link there too where you can be taken through to the registration. Uh, July look good for you, Ben? 
It does. Yeah, yeah. No, life is good. Nothing uh, too huge on the horizon, but uh, no, life is good. All right. Well, on that note, Simulcast listeners, uh, this is Victoria Brazel and Ben Simon signing off for the Simulcast July Journal Club. Thank you for listening to Simulcast. Simulcast. 